Hi, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEX podcast called Healthcare Insights. And today I have as my guest, Dr. Stanford Hill, who is the director of the Center for Excellence in Research, Teaching, and Learning, otherwise known as CERTLE. I've known Stan for many years. He's been involved in K-12 curriculum in the science, sciences and math, and is now running the center out of Wake Forest School of Medicine and has a partnership with University of Texas, Dallas. And his specialty um, with CERTL is inquiry-based learning. So Stan, welcome and tell us about inquiry-based learning, if you will. Well, in, in my view, Andy, it's just an approach to tackling a problem. The, the big challenge for kids is they don't know what to do when they don't know what to do. So what we try to do is create a classroom environment where the instructional approach gives you the tools to be able to dissect an unknown problem and figure out what you do know, what you need to know, and move forward. And we we connected uh, long ago uh, with medical education because Problem-based learning started in the medical community in the 80s. And at that time, I was an instructional specialist in K-12. And I was intrigued by the fact that students were learning medicine this way. And I actually asked a colleague who taught physiology here uh, what had him go in that direction. And his response was he had a lot of kids, med students, in his class who were making A's in physiology. And he said he would take them down the hall to a real patient with a real physiologically based illness, and they were clueless. So he did it in order to give a context uh, for their learning. And a lot of times in the K-12 world, people will debate me over the, the value of learning this way and whether or not it will provide enough rigor for kids to be uh, in a high-testing, high-stakes environment. My response is, I don't know of many environments more high-tech or high-stakes than medical school. So if it didn't work, it would have stopped a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you're you going to get a different definition depending on who you're talking to, but ours actually sits at the base of what we do and uh, how we interact with schools all through this region. Well, I had the pleasure of attending your workshop at the Slate Conference we did a couple months back, and I was impressed that, number one, there was no technology used. We just had a piece of paper with a problem, and we had a whiteboard, and the way it was delivered made all the difference um, in that we didn't have the sage on the stage. We had you as the facilitator and how the problem was set up and how it was delivered, and I thought that was... uh, a great approach. And, and what are the challenges from getting that incorporated into all of K-12, for instance? Well, the, the challenges are you're, you're trying to put an instructional approach into a high-stakes testing environment. And if it, if it doesn't lay in appropriately, then people are going to be afraid of it. So in the school environment, people have instructional standards or content standards, excuse me, and uh, so they have a certain amount of content they have to cover. But the question is not just what you know, but what are you able to do? So it's know and do. These standards have verbs. And then the instructional standards, which is what we focus on, is how do you know how to go from a content standard to a resource and to be able to roll it out in your room? And what is your room like? Do kids know how to collaborate? Is it a safe place? are the things you're talking to them about connected to the world of the students. So when we, when I first started getting interested in this in the, in the mid nineties, my teachers loved the approach, but they had no resources. They had no problems. They had no projects. And as a result, uh, they didn't have time to both teach and, and create those. And we started creating them as a center. And over all these years, we've created over a thousand problems. And then uh, in an effort to, address both areas, problems and projects. We created the partnership that you talked about with UT Dallas. Uh, They have a STEM center that serves uh, the STEM sanctioned schools in the state of Texas, and they go down the road of inquiry-based learning, specifically project-based learning. And uh, people are always asking the differences. Problems are sure to inquiries. Uh, We now have 
problems and projects moved over to an electronic database, and we have over 500. But a problem is going to have a scenario. It's going to put the kids in the role of some specialist. You are a, and here's the situation, and uh, your your job is to figure out from what you know what you need to know in order to address the issue and solve the problem. Uh, projects are longer inquiries. Uh, you could pick problems out of a repository that would take you a day, 45 minutes or so, up to three or four days. Uh, but you could pick projects that could take you six months. And a project starts with a launch video, which is just a real quick attention getter, sometimes a trailer from a movie. Uh, and then you have an entry document, which is kind of the equivalent of a request for proposals. And so the kids see that and they know that they have to address this request for proposals. And in the process of addressing it or in the process of solving the problem in problem-based learning, you're hitting your content standards. Uh, but you're not hitting them in a linear fashion. You're hitting them in a cumulative joined fashion, which means you can go through your standards much quicker. Quite often, teachers never get through the whole scope of a, a course. My my son told me a few weeks ago that one of his AP teachers was still teaching after the AP exam because there were two or three topics that she didn't cover. Unfortunately, those topics were on the AP exam, and uh, covering them after the assessment was probably not the most ideal way to cover them. Thanks for that. I, I, I'm a big fan of the flipped classroom and blended learning, and I just think that the approach that I've experienced um, in your workshops and in the past working with you and and working actually as a student in problem-based learning, that the foundational work or the precursor work gives the, I guess, scaffolding or the, the, the foundation that, that kids need or students need when they get to the group part. And I just think it makes for a much more valuable experience when you get to hands-on. And I think that has a transformational uh, ability for the way we look at school systems now. Uh, and, and, you know, my ideal world, if I was, we're going to stop building brick and mortar schools and we're going to, everyone gets access to these lessons and then we're going to meet, you'll meet with your cohort like for a week or three days or whatever at this predefined location in the real world and we're going to work on these problems. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that that PBL model supports that view of how education could be. And I think some people are actually doing that. Well, I know you got your master's degree that way. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an evolving world. And uh, I think that if you can create a methodology that fits with the evolving world, your chances of uh, being successful go way up. Mm -hmm. I think probably for me, the more important thing is everybody knows which kids can do and which kids can't do and when they can do it and when they can't do it. And that's really insightful, except it's inaccurate. And their premise is inaccurate. It's been my experience, of course, 46 years, that uh, the biggest differentiator is what you're doing and asking the kids to do and the environment you're putting them in. And if you can change that environment and change that context, kids who right now are asleep in your room will suddenly wake up and they'll be able to do some things that you had no idea they could do. And they're more responsible than you thought they could be. And when you think about uh, workforce development and you think about, you know, we're, we're not trying to drive all of the students we touch into healthcare, but there are worse places they could go. And there are opportunities in the healthcare field in this region where a student who is a resourceful student and a collaborative student can get a very good job and have a very good career and not necessarily having to go to a four-year institution in order to get to that place. Mm -hmm. Have we oversold that, the four-year institution? Well, as we were talking about earlier, a number of years ago, I was talking to Gary Green, who was the president of Forsyth Tech, and he told me that over half the students there already had a four-year degree. Uh, and they were going back in order to develop a skill that they could use in the in the workforce. I'm kind of torn. I could take either side and I could argue it. 
and I'm probably not the best one to argue it because I have advanced degrees, but I also have a lot of colleagues who do not, and they're extremely happy, and they appear to be, and they're extremely successful. So I don't think it's the same world that it was uh, when I was getting ready to go, quote, unquote, into college, where that really was the avenue. I don't see that as the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go to college and you know with the premise that it's going to teach them how to think critically I and mean, when a lot of times they're just getting more of the same right what have you seen change in in the in, like from the k-12 environment on up to higher learning um from what was taking place back in the 80s uh, up to now well i i'm not gonna declare that things have changed that drastically but the the language we use has changed so Uh, When our center was first created, it was designed to accelerate learning for underrepresented minority kids in math and science. And now that's called STEM. That acronym wasn't available uh, when this center was started. And it's interesting to me, almost humorous, when K-12 first launched here, they would go, well, we're going to have a STEM class. Well, that's interesting. You're only going to do the STEM work in one period a day, as opposed to embedded in everything you do. And then we came along, and for those who don't know, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Then we created a new acronym, STEAM. We put the arts in, as if it shouldn't have been in in the first place. But I think the the most powerful definition I've heard uh, comes out of the uh, North Carolina STEM Center. And their, their STEM acronym is strategies that engage the mind. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about. And if you adopt that, then that should be in every class, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just uh, a math class or a science class. It should be in every class. And inquiry-based learning uh, is a quality approach with anything you're doing. And it has uh, no more to do with one content area than the other. As a matter of fact, our if it's going to be a real-life problem, it's going to have all that in it anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be ill-defined, and it's going to be messy. Just like when you and I get home today and something doesn't work, and we're trying to figure out why and what to do, that's ill-defined, and that's messy. And the more we can engage kids with that in the learning environment, the better off they'll be when they see something they've never seen before. Otherwise, as a teacher... Uh, you're hoping that you can give them an example of everything that they're going to be tested on, which is uh, impossible to do. Mm-hmm. How relevant are textbooks in today's classroom environment? I think they're a resource, just like any other resource, an electronic resource. So I, I don't think it's a conversation as to whether we need them or we don't need them. I think it's a conversation of what is it that you need to know And where's the best place to find it? And if it's a textbook, then go there. And if it's a website, then go there. And if it's a person, then go there. Uh, So it's more about the reason for going than the place you're going. I personally would not want to have a class without some type of a textual resource, nor would I want to have a class that didn't have any technology in it. I would like to have access to a number of different things so that based on my kids and where they were and how they learn best, I could address that. How would you rate the adoption and inclusion of technology in the class over the time that you spent in in that environment? I mean, I, I mean, you go way back in that and it seems like we spent a lot of resources and money and time just trying to get technology in the class before we knew what it was going to do for the class. Well, thinking about going back, I can remember when we were producing multimedia, and uh, at that time uh, we had strong relationships with Bill Harton, who was in multimedia for IBM in Atlanta, and Michael Jay, who was in multimedia at Apple. And I can remember being in a social setting with you, me, and Michael Jay, and his comment was that... uh, the technology that Apple was putting in the classroom was being used as if teachers were trying to slice butter with a chainsaw. (laughs) So I think it's clearly underutilized. 
Uh, a lot of times the people who manage the technology budgets are not the same people who manage instruction. So they're sweeping across classrooms, uh, giving every classroom the same access to technology. But unfortunately, sometimes the thing that's missing is the reason to have the technology. So I go into a lot of rooms that have a lot of technology that's very underutilized. Uh, I, I just think they start at the wrong place. Mm-hmm. You, you need to start with an instructional purpose. And then if you've got a technology that's appropriate for that purpose, then go that way. And we, we tend to start on the other end, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little premature as well. I mean, the investment that was made in hardware at the time that in six months would be replaced with faster hardware or, or you know, at least the purchase that was made would be obsolete in a year or two. And, and I just remember seeing loads of desktops and monitors just being thrown in dumpsters and that kind of thing. Just thinking about all the money that was spent on that that could have been spent on better training for the oncoming onslaught of of technology and and you know most of the kids have more computing power in their pocket or their purse than we have in the classrooms Mm -hmm. and we don't allow that to be used so i think that's interesting Mm -hmm. Uh well i think there's been a, a a movement in many places where they have a technology resource center but they don't have it in the classrooms. I mean, there, for a long time, there was this one-to-one desired goal to have every student with, with a Chromebook at least right. um, to be able to use that as a resource. And now I think there's been a resurgence of having the zero-screen classroom and then having that as a resource to go to when, when the timing is right and when the need is there. I, I got the opportunity to sit through one of your workshops and I was really really impressed by the delivery of it and how everyone in the room which were all adult learners were so excited and challenged by by the approach so can you give us an example of of a case and and how it's delivered just so our listeners can get a feel for well I think that uh, the one you experienced was called the anatomical energy crisis Mm -hmm. and the scenario is that body central can no longer sustain all of the systems, all the organs, and you have to eliminate some. But the body still has to function. And as a result, which ones do you eliminate? And how do you know if the body's going to keep functioning? And so it gets someone's attention, particularly adult learners. The, the biggest challenge to this approach period is, are you picking something that will interest your audience. And if the answer to that is no, you need to pick something else. But the answer is yes, then now there's a level of interest that there wasn't before when people were just learning just because it was the next thing they needed to know. And uh, the particular problem that you experienced was created as a first day for a high school anatomy class. And it was created by an anatomy teacher who wanted to find out what her kids knew and didn't know about human anatomy at the very beginning of the year. And so she reports that it was very difficult to just be quiet and not intercede, not interject, uh, not have an opinion as they were going along. But that's part of it, is to have them grapple with the question. And then in this particular case, she uses the problem again at the end of the year to gauge the amount of knowledge anatomy knowledge that they had. So it is supposed to be engaging. It is supposed to be complex. The The challenge is to be able to take a problem you've never seen, it's in a textual format, and learn how to go through and identify the things you do know, specifically from reading it, and the things you need to know. Some of those need-to-knows uh, are part of the problem. They were made up. And as a result, only the teacher can answer those questions. But the majority of the need-to-knows are the learning issues that are at the base of the course you're teaching in the first place. So you pick problems that are going to hit the learning issues that you're trying to convey to your students. And then your role is to just facilitate at that point and to make sure people don't just sit and spin wheels uh, and your your real approach to moving them forward is just by asking questions. Mm-hmm. 
and keeping them engaged. And you as an instructor actually get a lot more of a uh, understanding of what kids know and can do from walking around in that environment than the environment where you felt responsible to be delivering all the content to all the people. Mm-hmm. So those are those are the strengths of the approach. I could have picked one to do with your adult group that would have been absolutely boring and your level of engagement would have been very different because you would have seen no reason why you would even want to be engaged in that inquiry. Mm -hmm. So one of the skills is what you pick. And in our case, you pick from a repository that you can modify, which is a whole lot better than nothing. And with the expectation that you as an instructor are going to have the time and the skill set to write a meaningful problem or project for your students. That's the, that's the flaw in the thinking of people who are training in this methodology without a repository. Mm-hmm. So back to that same example, what I, another thing I really liked about it was right in the middle of everyone's engaged, everybody was into the task. And then all of a sudden you're like, time out, new information. And it just, threw everything else into a into a tailspin, which I thought was was uh, fascinating the way people reacted to it. Some people are like, oh, no, we just we were almost with a solution, but it, it really mimicked real world problem solving, yeah. and, and I like that part. Another thing you said was instead of just being responsible for delivering information, this whole approach lends itself to today's environment of big data and data analytics because we're awash in data and we can even get some information out of it. But if we don't know what questions to ask, I mean, we know what it's telling us, but we don't know what that means, what questions we need to ask of it to get something back. So I think this approach really has implications for data analytics, which is a huge part of healthcare now. Yeah, I would agree. How are we training teachers to deliver this that's that's a very complex question, and it, it depends on who are the we, <laughs> uh, because teachers are in different environments. Some are in environments where they had a very strong teacher education program. Some are from a lateral entry environment, and some end up in school districts where there's a strong training environment. Some end up in a district where there's not any offerings of training, so It's a complex question, and uh, what we discover as a center when we engage with people is quite often they have never approached inquiry the way we're doing it, and they've never had access to the resources that we give them access to. So in our approach, it doesn't really matter what world you're sitting in or what people are doing because... This approach is not something else to do. It's just a more efficient way of doing the things you're already being held responsible for doing. So knowing how to set up your environment and how to connect with your learners uh, and how to make things relevant are going to be helpful to you regardless of what you're teaching, uh, what grade, what subject, what ability level child. So it just gives you Uh, what I would say, more of an opportunity to have a powerful learning environment for your kids. And aside from that, the other big issue I see is people don't uh, respect the amount of time it takes to move someone from what they have been doing to what you'd like for them to do. We tend to think that's a quick journey, and usually it's not a quick journey. Uh, They're not sitting there so happy that you're here giving them something different to do. Uh, some are seeing they're resistant, wondering why they should even be listening to you. And if they move past that, then it's a matter of how can I fit that into what I'm already doing? And if they move past that, it's, well, what if I use part of it and not all of it? And there's a whole body of research called CBAM, the Concerns-Based Adoption Model that came from the 80s that talks about this whole approach and what it's like to move into a new way of teaching and learning. And uh, all too frequently, schools think that that can happen very quickly. So 
They'll give teachers a two-day workshop or a 10-hour workshop just because that's what they have, two days or 10 hours. And it doesn't matter what they're trying to impart. That's how long we've got. So hopefully you'll get it then. And then we're going to pick out a few of you. And when you finish, you're going to be able to train everybody else in what we did with you. And all that's flawed. None of that will produce a result. Uh, Even back in the 90s, research said that if you had less than 60 hours of sustained instruction in anything, along with deliverables in your training, there was very little chance that it was going to stick. And if you look, if you go into most educational environments and look at the professional development they've had, you're not going to find many things, if anything, that has at least 60 hours of duration. Mm-hmm. One of the things that CERTL, the R, is for research, and I know that I was involved with a project with you years ago where we took, I think it was 90 high school science and math teachers and had them engaged in in creating problems. And I think as a research approach to how we could expand the teachers' knowledge of not only how this works, but how they can participate and how they can actually build their own questions, that that, that that's an approach to, to training teachers is to have them involved in, the, in case development in a very uh, systematic way. They accelerate through the program much more rapidly if they have an opportunity to start creating and building and trying out on their own. Uh, the other thing about research is, particularly in this area, people always want to know what impact can they expect. So if you don't have any kind of a research design behind your approach, you find it very difficult to sell in an educational environment because you, you really don't have the evidence you need to uh, have people moving along with you and in your in your direction. And we... We're probably doing more with that now than we did in the past, uh, being thoughtful and putting research questions inside of the work we do with people so that all of us can look back and quantify impact mm-hmm. rather than at the end just saying, well, I, I, I think we did fine and <laughs> everyone seems to have had a good time. <laughs> and uh, we we have no idea as to whether we increase learning or or didn't increase learning. And you'll know if they enjoyed the box lunch or not. There you go. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, outcomes or impacts, how tell me about some of the assessment models you, that, that you would have uh, after giving these, this approach to learning. How, how do you measure student achievement and, and knowledge? Well, the current K-12 environment has plenty of assessments already in it. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to build new assessments uh, I think the challenge is to just connect to the ones that are currently in place, end of course, integrate assessments, teacher evaluations, all the things that are in the world and already getting reported as being excessive, and just creating a, a design whereby we can look at the people that engage with us and their kids uh, versus similar environments where people are doing what they always did and uh, just trying to get a sense of whether uh, we are making a difference. And the the challenge with this approach is you're not using problems and projects every day. Mm-hmm. And some people are using them more frequently than others. Some are using investigations that last one day. Some are using investigations that last multiple months. So it's hard to quantify uh, that impact. But we... We do get a sense of, uh, of overall performance differences. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think that we should be uh, viewed as a solution to student performance problems. I think this is more of a foundational approach that will increase your chances that you're going to have a good solution. A lot of what we talk to teachers about, uh, career teachers would just call good teaching. Mm-hmm. And it really carries over into anything you would do instructionally. So, for example, if you if you don't know how to question your kids, if you don't know how to create an environment where they feel safe uh, answering your questions, if you can't put it in a context that they can see in their world, in their environment, then you're going to struggle regardless of what instructional materials people give you. So 
I think we can make an impact with people just with the instructional standards we talk about, whether they do one problem, two problems, or a problem every day. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, uh, how are you getting this out there? I know you got a partnership with UT Dallas, so you could talk a little bit about that, but how are you expanding the, the your reach with it with this approach? Well, we we have had the opportunity through some fairly significant grant funding, particularly in this region, through uh, mass science partnership money that flowed through the State Department of Public Instruction to reach almost every school system in Piedmont, North Carolina, with a program called MAPS, which mm-hmm. was a three-year program for mathematics primarily, but addressing content just like we've been talking about today. We engage a lot with school districts, and we engage a lot with individual schools. Uh, the The challenge is to engage with them long enough so that what we're doing can be sustained, which means identifying people who can legitimately become trainers and deliver in the environment where we were the same thing that we're delivering once we leave. And that's we have a four stage process to do that. And it's so much more than just just sit in the room differently and at the end you'll be you'll be ready to be a trainer. <laughs> in in reality, in our model, it's much more complex and you've got to actually uh, begin designing pieces of workshops, delivering those workshops in a supervised fashion, partnering with us to deliver, and then delivering pieces on your own. So it's gonna take you, I would say even if you're accelerating a couple of years of hard work to get to a place where you can reliably train your colleagues in what we do. We don't really advertise. We don't promote. We're an academic medical center. Center. We engage with people who express an interest and with people that we think that are in a position to be able to work with us in a way that's going to help them and help their, their kids. And then you... You know from our Best Self program, which is our new program for supporting employees and their children, that just that program alone is going to take a lot of bandwidth of the center uh, because we have a cohort now of around 28 students and their families, and we work with them on an extended basis around health and wellness and also around academic support, and you've got kids in the program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in in a week or so, your kids are going to get a two-week enrichment. That would be very expensive Mm -hmm. if you were to go over to some other campus and attempt to purchase it. Uh, Your kids also had the opportunity to be tutored by a med student uh, for an hour and a half every week for the entire spring semester. Uh, You get access to cooking classes and healthy eating. That's the comprehensive approach. And other employees whose kids are in here, just like yours, once we connect with them, uh, so you have one that's in the fifth grade, Mm -hmm. and she'll be in the program in the sixth grade all the way up until she graduates from high school. Mm -hmm. And the current plan is to expand that each year. So in, in this particular design, every year we're going to be increasing the number of students and families that we're touching. So that's a partnership with Best Health which is the health arm for employees mm-hmm. at Wake Forest Baptist, uh, the Office of Student Inclusion and Diversity, and then our center. So we're not just looking at supporting the child, but we're also looking at supporting the employee and the home environment because it all connects. Mm-hmm. And if we can create a supportive network around all of it for the students, we're going to be able to change their, their educational trajectory. Some uh, may go from not having an inf- interest or a trajectory of anything academic to getting that trajectory. Some who already have that academic interest and aptitude hopefully are going to have more choices mm-hmm. and more scholarship opportunities. So there's no bad news for anyone. But when you asked how we reach out and how we engage, mm-hmm. when we started reaching out in that fashion, uh, we pretty much committed a lot of center resources inwardly mm-hmm. to our own employees and our own students. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I like you said, I'm a part of that program, and it's it is extremely valuable, and I'm sure time consuming for you guys and resource consuming. And one thing that uh, I would ask as you scale it, how does that look for the center? Are you going to grow as a center, or are you just going to get as much out of it as you can at your current footprint or no i think if i think if uh scaling was dependent on just the resources of the center uh scaling wouldn't be possible mm-hmm. so scaling is going to require resources of wake forest baptist health so for example uh right now our med students tutor mm-hmm. but there's also been an interest from our ceo and dean to have other groups like maybe our pa students our PhD students uh, begin mm-hmm. tutoring. We don't necessarily have to create the summer enrichments every summer for the students. We have lots of enrichment opportunities throughout the organization. The question is, can we channel these kids every summer into an enriching summer experience? Mm-hmm. Because without that, They'll have some summers of enrichment, some without. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some families, uh, there are enrichment opportunities uh, already in place. But for others, maybe the opportunity for the student would be to stay home and watch a younger brother or sister. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we've learned through the years is that students who spend the summer without any type of academic stimulation regress. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just what did you learn during the 180 days. It's what did you do during that summer break uh, that sent you backwards. And so you're showing up in a in a weaker state than when you left in June. Mm-hmm. I know I know throughout the years, a lot of the programs that you've been involved in and this one included uh, the diversity inclusion aspect of things. I mean, I know you've been involved in increasing enrollment of minority students in STEM fields, STEAM fields, however you want to call it. Have you seen real progress being made there? We've seen a lot of progress since the very uh, early days. And um, there is, uh, there was, and she may or may not still be in practice, a lady by the name of Katie Haycock, her center did a lot of research and may still be doing it on student performance, particularly around demographics. So the question is, you've got a group of students that you think that you're declaring can't learn, and she at the Education Trust would go around the country and find places where that group of students, not only uh, were they learning, but they were outperforming the other students. So it really began to break apart these misconceptions as to who could and who could not do. Uh, And she did that with every group at every age. So it could be algebra. And some people saying, well, eighth grade is too young to learn algebra. She'd find places where they could learn it and were learning it in the fourth grade. Or this particular group of students can't learn. And she would find places where they were outperforming other students. So then the, the, the question is, what's present in those environments that has that show up? And what she found is you had three things, quality teaching, academic rigor, and high expectations. Mm-hmm. And so when we first began engaging with students uh, and putting them in an enriching environment, we grabbed students who were heading into a standard level of high school biology we took them over to with with a predictor uh, between a 25 and a 50% chance of being successful in that course. We moved them over to our Renolda undergraduate campus and engaged our faculty that teach freshman biology, and we literally gave these children every lab associated with, high, with college freshman biology uh, in a summer environment, even using TAs in the college lab. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the kids didn't know they weren't supposed to do that, so they did that successfully. Uh, we sent them back to their their high school, and uh, part of the deal was the school had to put them in an honors-level class. They wouldn't have gone in an honors-level based on their predictor, so it would have been a standard-level class. So now you're automatically reducing the rigor expectation, 
Also, sometimes the people who are assigned the honors level have a higher skill set than those assigned to teach standard. So there's your quality teaching, mm -hmm. and the expectations were different also. And for each, every one of these kids in that uh, initial pilot, uh, they were all successful. They all passed honors biology, and they uh, were all proficient on the biology end of course test. We took the same group, gave them chemistry enrichment on the Rinalda campus, put them in honors chemistry, all successful. Then we gave them physics enrichment, put them in honors physics, all successful. So just that little research experiment in itself uh, breaks apart a whole lot of incorrect thinking in the K-12 world mm -hmm. as to what it takes. Quite often, if you find a kid that you think is struggling, you want to make it easier for them, mm -hmm. uh, not more rigorous, uh, not more challenging. And we did just the opposite. Uh, we had no remediation in anything we did. Uh, it was more about where you are and how we move you forward. There are a lot of lessons there. Mm -hmm. A lot of lessons that I think that even now, all these years later, people who are assigning kids to classes uh, could learn from. And one of the things I do as part of our enrichment program for the kids of our employees is go into the education environment and take a hard look at what they're taking and what they're signing up to take to make sure that they're not falling in a slot where there's not a lot of rigor and not a lot of high expectations mm -hmm. because we've got a support structure that will keep you functioning in a rougher environment or a tougher environment. Mm -hmm. So why duck into something easier and then discover when you're getting ready to graduate from high school that you're not a, let's just say STEM, you're not a competitive candidate because you never took calculus, mm -hmm. you never took any type of advanced chemistry or physics. So you're competing for slots, for example, at your old alma mater, NC State. And in reality, if you're trying to get in without those credentials, you're not going to get in mm -hmm. because everybody you're competing with not only had those courses, but excelled in mm -hmm. those courses. So that's the kind of thing we're trying to interrupt if we, if we discover it. Yeah, I think society pays a high cost for low expectations in yeah. that regard. And and seems like the system is set up to just corral those students into a less rigorous. Well, you hear too many stories about uh, people looking to the K-12 world and employees, employers talking about students graduating without the ability or without the skills to do the things they need them to do. Mm -hmm. So it will ultimately catch up with you, uh, whether you're trying to get into a uh, research one university or just trying to get a, a good job mm -hmm. in an, in a competitive field. Yeah, I've heard that in the workforce development. They'll list out a inventory of skills that they need to fill certain jobs that they have available like in six months or, or even right now. And, you know, these institutions will gather up these uh, high school graduates and turns out they don't even have the requisite math to reach those entry level just for the training program. Yeah. So you got to go retrain them and then it sets them back another six months. It, it has a lot of implications when people are looking to move business and industry into your community. They want to know what kind of an educational environment you've got. And are you going to be able to produce a workforce that they can use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's important, especially gets more and more important as, as, technology uh, advances and we have more AI and robotics and then the critical thinking skills of the human mind become more sought after and, and the less you have those the less the more you're likely to get displaced out of the out of the workforce I would agree there was a, a joke that people would say and hopefully it wasn't all that true that in some educational environments kids were promoted based on height and behavior. <laughs> which meant if you were big enough and or bad enough, you moved on, <laughs> uh, regardless of what you'd accomplished academically. I think it was uh, a slang for the term social promotion. Yeah. Well, hopefully we, we're, we're getting away from that and really challenging our students and, and giving them high expectations to perform. And I know the program that, that my kids are in, the Best Self program that you mentioned, um, just having 
you or one of your representatives show up at their school and just check on them, it really shows them that it's more than just their, more than just their family or themselves that are in this and their teachers. It's it's other people that got their back too and that are concerned with them. Nobody wants to be called down to the office and sitting with me and their principal and looking at their progress reports and determining that they are subpar and they've been subpar. And they're not taking the coaching. Those are long sessions mm-hmm. uh, for the young people. So usually after about one or two uh, that haven't gone well, uh, they tend to prepare more mm-hmm. as we move forward. I'm starting to see some improvement in one of my children that are you know has been struggling. So uh, the the thing that he suffers with is is lack of engagement and interest and. Right. And I think that's a huge problem um, for him, and I'm just trying to find ways to get him in, engaged. And it's it's not easy sometimes with the when you're competing with screens and games that are built for addictive behaviors, and, and then you put them in this classroom with a teacher up front delivering a lesson. It's just really hard to to engage those minds when they they're so used to being overstimulated. Yeah. Any uh anything you you'd like to add from from your world and and how it relates to healthcare, the workforce in our region and some of the challenges that we face well, going forward. I know recently uh all the news here has been about the collaboration between Atrium and this institution and uh what implications that will have and I remember watching one video of uh, one of the initial announcements and one of our physicians talked about the potential impact of that collaboration on health care and the health and well-being of people. And our CEO talked about getting people educated to live healthier. And I'm thinking as an educator, what better place to start that than in K-12 rather than waiting until they're an adult. And so right now we are in an inquiry uh, regarding going into our existing repository of problems and projects, regardless of what the subject area is, and making sure that we can add a health and wellness piece to it and also an active piece to it, meaning that when the kids are engaged in the learning, they're up and moving and not sitting around. And so from my perspective as a center director, I think that's the most valuable thing I can do when we're looking at ultimately making an impact in the region on healthcare is by getting the kids early on and doing that type of work. Mm-hmm. So that's our, that's our next step. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, for my listeners, they know a, a big thread that weaves through all, all these conversations is health and wellness, nutrition, and, and the value of starting with what you put in your mouth and how important yeah. that is. And I think, I think that's right to, to educate kids at a young age and involve their families because that's the kids don't really get to make a lot of decisions on on what gets put in the fridge and what gets cooked and well that's the advantage of the program that you as an employee are in with your family because you've just pointed to it if you're just working with the student on healthy eating and they arrive back home to an environment where that's not what's being prepared they're very limited as to what they can do to alter that particular environment Mm -hmm. but in this program you're looking at all the aspects Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think for the community and for families uh incorporating problem-based inquiry-based learning in some sort of lifelong learning workshops for parenting (laughs) even uh it it could be tremendously valuable um in in getting our mindset shifted to to that way of, because as a parent, I struggle with this too. Sometimes I'm the sage on the stage and I'm delivering, you know, philosophical advice and, and, and directives and my kids tune me out about a minute in and, and I'm not engaging them like I should be. So, I mean, even, even as a parent, figuring out how to deliver the instruction that I want them to retain is, right. could, could benefit from, from this inquiry-based based approach. Well, I, I appreciate all you're doing. I've, like I said, I've been a friend of yours and worked a colleague of yours for many years, and we've worked on projects and everything that 
I've been to that you've been either leading or or some facilitating role in, everyone's engaged, everyone's excited, and that speaks volumes about I think what you're doing and what you've done all your career. So well, thank you. That that's a good thing to know, particularly <laughs> when you're getting near the end of a career. <laughs> well, we hope that you you'll you'll stick it out for another decade or so. Tell our listeners how they can get involved um, or, or where they can go out and find more information about this. And Well, probably if you want to reach out to the center, just go to wake-utd.org. And that's our base website. And there are opportunities for you to see all the different programs we're engaged in and also opportunities for you to reach out to us if you have a particular question or request. And we'll be happy to get back in touch with you. How would you coach a parent um, that's going to have a conference with their teacher to ask about this? What would be a standard question that, that they could ask their teacher about whether they're doing this type of approach in the classroom? I think that as a parent, particularly now, you can go to either your school district website or to the State Department website, uh, State DPI, and get a good sense of what the expectation is for your particular child based on their grade and their subject. So you'll be able to see what's supposed to be covered, both the what you need to know and what they need to be able to do. And quite often on the district website, you get to see what the teacher is uh, assigning. Uh, you get to see, based on what your child brings home, what they're doing. And then my, my coaching is get interested in it and if you don't understand the thinking behind the assignment or if you're unclear as to what's being expected of your child, come to the conference with that question. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the reality is the education of your kid is a partnership between you and the teacher. It's not, a, it's not an antagonistic environment. And so if the two of you can figure out how to collaborate, the learning for your kid's going to go up if you're constantly in an argumentative role, uh, you won't produce value. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Um, Are there any, do you know of any things out there in our community, especially in our region, where these kind of workshops are happening that that people could get involved in, especially I'm thinking more towards the healthcare workforce in our area and in the different disciplines? Are, Are there workshops or conferences or anything that you know about that people can can go and attend and and get a taste for what it is we're talking about? I would recommend that if anyone really wanted to go down this road of inquiry, I would go to NC STEM to their website, and they do a very good job of promoting everything that's happening throughout the state of North Carolina that connects with the conversation you and I have been having. And that's where I would start. Mm -hmm. And you're going to find just from NC STEM a lot of other entities who are doing similar things and you can reach out to them and that's where you begin to look at what's happening regionally. Anything from science Olympiads to summer opportunities to internships, they're more of a uh, aggregator for the state of North Carolina, probably the best aggregator that I know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I'd start. Good. Well, again, thanks for your time today and I really appreciate you coming here and having a conversation with me. My pleasure.